What keeps you alive? I wonder what comes to mind as you answer that question in your own head. Do you think of your physical organs or your brain or whatever it is? Or are you thinking about the fuel that is required by your organism for it to maintain life? You answer it for yourselves, but we're going to consider what the Lord Jesus says about that question and his uh, interaction with the people in Capernaum, which was his hometown. Uh, We're going to take our reading from John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and our series, as Giles commenced it last week, is looking at some just as statements of the Lord Jesus, where he says that just as he is something or he experiences something and those who trust in him experience the same. That's the reason for which Jesus came, that he would bring us into the blessings of God. God has given us the best in his son. And as Paul says in Romans 8, if he gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? And Jesus was teaching this when he was here and instructing people and encouraging people to say, look, This is on offer for you too. Let's take our reading from John 6, this time in verse 35. And we're breaking into a a narrative here for the sake of time. Um, And we'll get to our verse, which is verse uh, 57 in due course. So verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, You have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. But to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall lose none of all those he has given me. But raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him. Shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him. Because he had said. I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said. Is this not Jesus the son of Joseph. Whose father and mother we know. How can he now say I came down from heaven. Stop grumbling among yourselves Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me 
and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. You see the reason why it's necessary to read the context to try and understand what is actually quite a difficult just as statement of the Lord Jesus. Here he is as we're told at the end of this by John that this happened in the synagogue in Capernaum. It's on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee and if you remember Jesus grew up in Nazareth in Galilee to the north of Palestine at that time. It was his hometown and it's Matthew that tells us that in Matthew 4.13 it says and leaving Nazareth he went and lived in Capernaum. So Jesus had made a, a move and then he went out in his ministry from there. <clears throat> it wasn't very long before this that on a hillside near Tiberias on the other side in the southwestern side of coast of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus had done one of his most famous miracles where he'd taken five loaves and two fish and he'd fed over 5,000 people as we're told. When he moved on from there the people then chased after him the crowds came that's in the backstory earlier in chapter 6 and they came to Capernaum where Jesus had ended up and when, he, when they come to him, he challenges them as to their motivation for coming after him. Saying that you're really just coming after me because you're getting free food. Free physical food and it's, it's something quite special. And Jesus wants to get at the heart of the great need of every human being. Which is the need for the forgiveness of sins. So that eternal life might be a possibility. The people in their interactions with Jesus prior to what he he says, as we've read it, refer back to Moses. And they said, look, Moses, the great Moses, the one through whom the law came to us. Moses, he was able to get manna from heaven. And Jesus says, no, it wasn't Moses did that. It was my father. It was God who supplied that. And they were saying that the sign of Moses' credentials as being a man of God is that this provision would come from heaven. Here was Jesus then saying, you, you want some credentials about who I am? Because they asked him, show us a sign. He says, I'll tell you. And the outcome of that is what we've read together where he instructs them about himself as being the source and the sustaining of true life. He's the bread of God, as it says in verse 63 that we didn't read. He said, I'm the bread of God which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus was taking up this uh, physical metaphor of food and using it as a reason and a help to try and explain to people that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out from the mouth of God. And here he was, the word of God himself. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, as we're told in John 1. He's the one who has come, and he is the one from God, who is the one who ultimately brings life where there is spiritual death. He wants people to get beyond the physical and the things associated with the physicality of this life and really engage with the reality of their spiritual existence. You know, people today are quite happy to say, oh, I'm a spiritual person. So there's no denying for some that there is a spiritual and unseen uh, element to our existence. We're not just, for many people, we're not just 
this collocation of atoms and the result of a big physical accident that really takes any meaning out of life at all. There is something beyond the physicality. Now, a true atheist would say, no, that's not the case. We're just purely physical. And what we experience is physical. But I think when we press at people, we'll see that there's something that they would confess is above and beyond. And even the most ardent of atheists at times will slip up and say, well, they're looking down on us. Okay, so that that takes you outside of what your, your stated belief is. I think that says something about what the wise man said in the book of Ecclesiastes, God has set eternity in the heart of man. Romans chapter 2 as well, that there is within the person their thoughts and their conscience that at times accuse them and at other times reward them for the things that they do. There is something about who we are that is bigger and greater than just this physical existence. I'm not saying and degrading the physical existence because the physical existence is necessary for the spiritual we don't have time to go into this but jesus is wanting the people then and us too to get beyond just looking merely at the physical and really engage with the spiritual reality which brings us then into well what does that mean in terms of my relationship with the spirit god who must be there and who is the source of all life so imagine the scene here jesus is teaching in the synagogue synagogues back then were were places for the local community to gather a bit like a community hall and they would use it for religious and non-religious functions but given that jesus is teaching here it might be on one of the occasions when uh, the people would come particularly to hear instruction so the people have followed him to capernaum he's gone to the place where people would gather very um, sensible way of doing it and the people who are interested in come and there's this interaction the jews that are referred to here is the jewish re- uh, religious leaders it's not just the general population so it seems though we've got the mix of the general population who have come after the food and you've got the jewish leaders who are sitting listening in and they're really struggling with the things that jesus is saying because it is getting right at the heart of their spiritual understanding verse 35 where we picked it up, I'm the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. What a claim. He says, you're coming after me because you want more free food. He could give that if he wished. And many people come to God and don't even acknowledge that God is the giver of all good things and they're quite happy to keep taking what is given in the physical realm and enjoy it without any reference to God. But here Jesus is saying, look, if you come to me, Come to me and you believe as well. It's trusting faith. You'll not be hungry. There'll be a satisfaction to your need. You'll not be thirsty. There'll be a satisfaction to the deep need that is within you. He's using the example then, isn't he, of the physical life-giving energy source that food is. And he's saying in spiritual terms, without me, You have no life. He's the one who can bring fulfillment. But then comes his warning in verse 36. You've seen me, but yet you do not believe. They've seen him. They spent time with him. He's fed them. He's grown up for part of his existence, most likely in Capernaum. If he was already a mature man when he moved there, then that might well be the case. He's he's been operating there probably as a local carpenter. They've seen him. And they've seen the way he works and the way he teaches. 
You've seen me and yet you do not believe. It's a warning to us, isn't it, that it's not enough just to see and accept that Jesus was a true historical and physical figure, part of history. And to observe his miracles and say, oh yeah, well that's all good. It does not automatically translate itself into an absolute trust in him as the one to meet the deepest need, which is the forgiveness of sins against a holy God, that we might enjoy the eternal life that he came to give. Notice he says in verse 37, all that come to me, I'll certainly not drive them away. What a wonderful promise from Jesus. That he says, if you come to me, I'm not going to drive you away. And there's a reason for that, which we'll get to in a few verses time. If there's a genuine response in the heart of a sinner who recognizes that their spirituality, their spiritual existence is not right. And there is this accusation within themselves of, from their own conscience that everything is not right. To recognize that. And then to realize that Jesus is claiming to be the answer to that problem and the only answer. And that person then comes to him. Jesus is never going to drive that person away. Wonderful promise that all who come to Jesus will be received by him. And in verse 38, he says, why? For I have come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. Come down from heaven? Now here's a claim for the man who was standing in front of them and they said, how can he say that? We know his father, we know his mother, and we've seen him. He's a man just like the rest of us. How can he say he's come down from heaven? But he said he's come down from heaven to do what? To do the will of God. Here's the only man who has ever lived his life entirely according to the will of God who designed humanity with the purpose to rule over his creation and to do that in partnership with him and to fulfill his will in that way, but yet humanity has rebelled and turned against God and we see the mess of our own personal decisions worked out in our own lives and the lives of other people. And Jesus says, I've come down from heaven, from outside of this physical existence that you know I've come from heaven, the place where God is, and I have come that I might do his will. And his will would take him to the cross. Notice that he said, to do the will of him who sent me. Here is God, who in his mercy from all of eternity had designed this plan of salvation for rebel sinners. And it would require the sending by the Father of God the Son into the world to be our saviour. John 4 verse 14. John could say, we have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son to be the saviour of the world. And remember that it is God's will that all men, all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Brings us on to verse 39, where he says that everyone that the Father gives me, he's essentially saying, they'll be secure with me forever. And I will raise them up on the last day. Here's the first reference to four references in this little section to the last day. First, before we get on to that, there's the promise here in Jesus of eternal security, secured forever. The language he uses there, he says, I've come down from heaven outside of this physical existence. 
to meet a need that you cannot meet yourselves. And I've come so that you might believe, see and believe. And secure you through that faith forever. What a wonderful thing when we know that Jesus was raised from the dead and has ascended to the Father and is the proof in himself that he is the Son of God, the eternal God. And when he promises something, he never lets us down on it. There's the promise of eternal life. And he says, I will raise them up on the last day. As I say, the first of four references to that. It's a day of reckoning, of final judgment, of judgment and reward. You know, this wasn't a fully formed thing in, in the, uh, the Jewish people's minds at that time. They rested on a few verses in the Old Testament that seemed to indicate there was a resurrection. Probably among them was Daniel 12, where it says in verses 2 and 3, it says, The multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That was a core text in the debate that raged actually between the religious leaders as to whether a physical bodily resurrection was a real thing or not. That's why when you come to the account of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the disciples were not expecting it at all. They were expecting a resurrection of all people on this so-called last day, but not there and then. That's why they were so surprised and unbelieving to begin with. But they had some understanding of resurrection. The Pharisees certainly did. The Sadducees didn't. You know, the Sadducees denied that there would be any future resurrection. So it was all about life here and now. And you live your best life and you live your most religious life here and now. And then that's it. No wonder Jesus didn't spend a whole lot of time with the Sadducees. But he did interact with the Pharisees who quite often were hypocrites in their religiosity and so on. But yet they had a belief that there was a final day of reckoning. Isn't that what everybody in this world wants? A day of reckoning. Because there is injustice everywhere. And it happens every day. And it happens in our own experience. And there are times when people will do something even small to us. And we wish that they will have their comeuppance. That's the reaction of my heart to people. We're all looking for a, what we consider to be a just outcome for the circumstances of life. And then you look at the world and the great horrors that happen. Surely there must be a day of reckoning. And here's the Lord four times in this saying there is. And it's the last day. And there will be a full and a final judgment. And it will not be according to any standard of righteousness that we've invented. It will be according to the righteousness of God. Hebrews 9, 27 it says people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Go say that lovingly to those who believe in reincarnation. But also say it to everybody else that when this life is done, like so many in our society in the West think that once that's it, that's it. And say, no, it's not. There is judgment beyond. When Paul was preaching to Felix, Acts 20-something, it says he preached to him about righteousness and judgment to come. And Felix got frightened and said, you go away for a while and when I'm ready, I'll call you back. It's a frightening thing to 
really face up to the reality that there is a day of reckoning. And many people will push it and suppress it, as Paul says in Romans 1. It'll be suppressed. But the reality is that we're spiritual beings. And we have a great need. A great need we cannot fix for ourselves, but can only be fixed in Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who has been appointed, as we're told, to judge the living and the dead. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. When Peter went to preach to Cornelius and his household, he said, we've been commanded to preach and to testify that Jesus is the one God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And when he stands in Athens, Paul says, he has set a day when he's going to judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed and he has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. The risen Jesus will be the judge who will stand on the last day. But Jesus makes a promise here in this text that for those who see him and believe in him, put their trust in him, they're his forever and he will raise them up on the last day and that's a positive statement. You'll be raised up to the future eternal life that is there to be enjoyed. Verse 40, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day, re-emphasizing what he's already said. This is one of the most repetitive sections of scripture and the teaching of Jesus that you'll come across. It's because he keeps coming around to this thing. You need to believe so that you'll have eternal life. And if you do, that eternal life is secure and I will raise you up on the last day. We thought about the Jews complaining How can he be from heaven? He says to them, stop complaining. And here's important to lie alongside the earlier verse. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus said, all those who come to me, I'll never drive away. Lay that alongside verses 43, 44. What does it tell us? All those who come to him are drawn by the father. You know the word for drawn there? translators have used that word because it fits I think with the context there's always the the debate over how a word should be translated but you look at it where it's translated the other five times and the majority of times it's when you take something and you drag it there's this sense that the rebel sinner is so set against God that God must come and intervene and he brings them to the saviour look at him he's the satisfaction for your greatest need And in that moment, the grace of God is supplied for faith to come and to put faith and exercise it in Jesus Christ and life is given. Because we're told in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. We're dead. Dead people don't naturally respond to anything. It requires the intervention of the great God who sees the spiritually dead and has set his love on them and he takes them and he brings them to the Savior. And the Lord Jesus therefore says, those who come to me, I'll never drive away. Why? Because the Father has brought them to me. Here's the work of God. And the Spirit is engaged in this too. It's not explicit in this teaching of the Lord, but the Spirit, as we learn from John chapter 1 and John chapter 3, is involved too to quicken the heart for them to see in the Savior. He is the one who has life. Skipping on to verses 47 to 48, and we are almost done. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Repeat again. And he's coming back to the idea of bread. 
I am the bread of life. That which you must take in to sustain and to give the life that is required. Your fathers, they ate manna and they died. It was a physical thing provided by the grace of God, but they still died. But you, by taking me in, bringing me into your existence, you will know life and that life forever. Verses 50 to 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. They repeat again. And if anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And that bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. His physical existence. He has come that he might give himself. Here is God the Son. Along with God the Father and God the Spirit. And there was no one from all humanity who could ever deal with the problem of sin. Because they must always deal with their own sin first. But here he is, he's come. And in the perfection of his life lived in the flesh. He is the righteous one who can go to the cross. And he can be the representative for those who will put their faith in him and be counted righteous on accord with, on accordance with his righteousness. He's the representative head of a new race of people. People who could not extract themselves from their sin. Here he comes and in his sinlessness he gives himself on the cross. He says you'll not die if you eat me and you take me in. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're still thinking in the material and physical ways. In verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The Lord's getting at something else here. You eat my flesh. The very reality, I'm the one who has seen the Father who has come to be here on earth. And to reveal the life of God to you. And to invite you into that life. You need to, you need to take me in. You need to eat me, just like you would take bread in, so that it would sustain your life and fuel your whole existence. And then drink his blood. That was a horrific thing for a Jewish person to consider, given the laws given by God in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He was saying that the blood was given. Life is in the blood. He's speaking something of his sacrifice when his life would be poured out on the cross for guilty sinners. And then he goes on, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. He's repeating the same thing, bringing in the various elements of his metaphors. And I will raise him up on the last day. There's the great reminder of the strength and the power and the authority of God the Son, Lord Jesus Christ, to satisfy, to come and to meet our greatest need, our spiritual poverty. And he says... You'll have it. You'll have it. And I'll raise you up on the last day. And we get it by consuming him. And then comes our statement. Verse 57. Just as the living father sent me. And I live because of the father. So the one who feeds on me. Will live because of me. So seen in its context. You can see. That here is the invitation to come. And to enjoy. The same quality of life. As Jesus Christ, the eternal, the eternal Son of God and Son of Man experienced. This does not teach us, by the way, as some have, uh, from the 3rd century onwards, have taught that Jesus was not co-eternal and always existing with God the Father. There are some who would say that Jesus was the first of God's creation a super angel in a sense. And you'll, you'll come across that today in your conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. 
And the church in the Philippines, Ecclesia and Christo, teach this. That Jesus was the first and the greatest and then through him the rest of creation comes. That's the basis of my recent interactions with Jehovah's Witnesses in Gatley. That's, that's what they're talking about. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying his life is united with, with God the Father and always has been. And the life that he's lived on earth is lived out because of that connection. And then he's saying just as the living Father, the one who is the source of life, sent me and I live because of him. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. What is that telling us? He is the way to life with God. John 14 and 6, favourite text. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what keeps you alive? Many things you could say that keep you alive in this life. But it's appointed for men to die once. Unless the Lord returns as he has promised and we're still alive, then those who are alive will meet those who've already passed on in the air. It's a great promise from 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord is coming back. But there, there is a day ultimately when all the secrets of men's hearts will be judged, as Paul says, through Christ Jesus. And we will all stand before him as the judge, the one who has come and has said, I am the bread of life. I've come down from heaven. And you believe in me. You take me into your experience. You put all of your trust in me, not just for physical life, but for your spiritual existence beyond this life then you're secure in me forever. And I will raise you up to the joys of eternity with God. Psalm 34 verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And I just finish with this text from Romans 6 verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gracious or the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a reminder to us today of the great gospel of God, of the glorious God, that he has come to us in the person of his son to lift us from our deadness and bring us into life. Let's be sure that we see him and we believe him and that we take him in and we live in the joy of that life, just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Let's pray.